the reading this morning is from Titus, um, Titus 2, 11 to 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has, has appeared to all men. It teaches, us, it, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, a right and godly life in, the pres- in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us for all wickedness and purify, and purify to himself a people that are his very own, eager to, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you, are, you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Great to be with you. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, please keep it open at Titus 2, or it'll be uh, on the screen if that's your preferred way of following along. Let's pray together. And gracious God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us. And as we spend this time now thinking about it, Father, we ask that you would be among us by your spirit, uh, open our minds to understand, give us hearts that are ready to obey, Take our hearts and seal them, that we and everything about us might belong to you and we might live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as James uh, mentioned earlier, we're jumping out of the series on Judges just for a week and uh, jumping into the book of Titus. Uh, This is a a passage that I love, Uh, got the choice of what we could look at today and so I thought this would be a terrific passage. I think it's the centrepiece of the book of Titus, if you want to go home and You've got 20 minutes to spare this afternoon. Read all of Titus. It's three chapters. You'll rip through it uh, and you can see how this passage fits into the very centre of it. Uh, But we're just looking at this one passage today. One of the great things about this passage is the heart of its message is directly relevant to every single one of us. And you can't always stand up and say that with confidence, but I feel quite confident to say that today because this is a passage that tells us very simply how to live a godly life, how to be godly. And I I hope I can say with confidence that if you're here today, that is something that is of great interest to you. If you're a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for years or for a very short time, wanting to live in a way that pleases the Lord, wanting to live a godly life, has to be something that is on your heart. You may be aware that it should be on your heart more than it is, but certainly, to some degree, we want to live a godly life and we long to know how. Or if you're not a Christian and you're here today, it's wonderful, fantastic that you're here, and you might be trying to think, well, I I don't know what I make of Christianity or of Jesus or whatever it is, but I would at least like to know what it's going to look like in my life, what what it's going to mean if I'm to live as a Christian, if that's something you're considering. And so for all of us, this is something that's crucially important. And this passage sets up for us how it is that we live a life pleasing to the Lord by showing us the connection between our godliness and the grace of God. That's the key to this passage. 
There you go, giving you the, the answer up front. The, the passage here sets up for us that if we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, the thing that teaches us to do that and the thing that enables us to do that is the grace of God, the generosity of God, the, the, the goodness, the kindness of God. Now, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, either saying something like that, and the grace of God teaches us these things, either that might sound so obvious that it doesn't mean very much, or it may possibly sound a bit odd. Because we talk about the grace of God a lot, hopefully, if we're doing it right. We talk about the grace of God a lot, but primarily, I think, when we speak about the grace of God, we think in terms of our salvation. We think in terms of the forgiveness of our sins and, if you like, the beginning of the Christian life, how it all starts. Perhaps we're not as good or not as consistent in seeing how it is that the grace of God fuels and informs and shapes the ongoing Christian life. And that's really what this passage teases out for us and gives us some key ways that we can begin to think about that. So uh, let's, let's first of all just do a little bit of background on the book of Titus that will, that will help us as we uh, get ourselves oriented to this passage. Uh, Titus is written by Paul to Titus. Uh, Titus was his, one of his many, I guess, protégés in ministry as he went around preaching the gospel and other leaders were raised up to join with him. Titus was one of those people. And Paul had been on the island of Crete, a little Greek island. Uh, he'd, he'd been there, but he left. And he left Titus behind in Crete essentially to oversee the ministry of multiple churches in Crete and to organise them to make sure they were on the right track. Titus effectively is a bishop. If you want to think about it, if we're to apply a a sort of a modern-day Anglican term, he's overseeing ministry that happens in lots of churches. So that's kind of who Titus is. And then in the the first part of chapter 2 that we didn't read this morning, those first 10 verses, Paul sets out for Titus step-by-step instructions to be given to different groups of people, depending mostly on their age and their stage of life. So he goes through and he gives instruction to older men, to older women, to younger women, to younger men, and then he talks about slaves. It would be be fascinating if we had the time to stop and look at what instructions are given to each group and the very idea that each group is addressed individually and differently, that uh, depending on your gender and your stage of life, there might be different things that are particularly relevant. One thing that I thought was especially interesting was that older women, in that that first 10 verses, older women are given a key responsibility to teach younger women. So older women, take note of that. I'm not saying if you're older or not, that's up to you to figure out. But if you think you're an older woman in relation to somebody else, there is a particular responsibility given to you there to teach younger women to live godly lives. Now that's, that's kind of the lead up to our passage, that, that careful instruction that Paul gives to Titus on what to instruct others in. And then in our passage, he comes more onto, if you like, the truth or doctrine, we might say. And it's kind of a reversal of how Paul often does it. Often in Paul's letters as you're reading through, he'll start with the truth. He'll start with doctrine. He says, this is what's true. This is who God is. This is what God's done for us, something like that. And then he'll say, here's the implications. But if you read Titus 2, it's flipped around. It starts with, here's what the Christian life looks like and here then is how the truth, how doctrine fuels that. 
So that's, that's kind of the background. And that brings us in to focus on the grace of God, which is at the heart of this passage. And in our passage, there's three things that the grace of God does. The grace of God appears, the grace of God saves, and the grace of God teaches. So let's, let's look at those three things. We'll look at the first two very quickly as we want to zero in on the third one today a little bit more. So first of all, in verse 11 of our passage, the grace of God appears. Uh, if, you, if you follow uh, the focus of this passage and you follow all of Titus through, I think when it uses the word appears, it's talking about the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. That's, that's what he means by appears. Uh, some of you might know the, the Greek word that gives us the word appears. It's the word epiphany. So as we come to celebrate Christmas and people talk about epiphany, uh, that's where we get a word like that from. It means appearing. And it, it doesn't mean, of course, something that appears out of nowhere, something that wasn't there before at all and now it's appeared. What it means instead is something that used to be hidden or veiled in some way, but now has been fully revealed, fully made known. And so what Paul is saying is that in the coming of Jesus, in the appearing of Jesus, God's grace has been fully revealed, fully available now to anyone who would receive it, whether they're man or woman, whether they're a slave. God's grace is freely available to all and has fully appeared. Kind of like, if you like, like, the clouds parting at night and the stars being revealed. It was always there, always there, but now it's being fully revealed, appearing in the coming of Jesus. And I want you to remember that word appears because we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the passage. So that's the first thing the grace of God does, it appears. The second thing that it does is that it saves. It saves. Now let's not skim too quickly over this just because it might be the one we're more familiar with. The grace of God, the coming of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus was to offer salvation to all people. No one, no matter who they are, what they've done, is beyond the scope of God's grace. It's one of the reasons it's really exciting to hear about what's happening in Otago is because Cam and Grace are there as messengers of God's grace to all people, as we should be, because when Jesus appeared, it was to bring God's grace in a saving way to all people. And that's true because of the magnitude of what Jesus achieved. You just see it describes there that he redeems us from all wickedness. He makes us his own. He didn't just appear kind of to say, hi, look at me, everybody. He appeared for a particular purpose, to bring the grace of God in its ultimate form, in its perfect form, in its saving form, through his going to the cross and dying for us. Now, many of us here will be very familiar with this idea and it's the beating heart of who you are if you're a Christian, to to know and love the grace of God that's been shown to you in Jesus. But I would be fairly confident in a group this size, not everybody has that first-hand experience of the grace of God coming into your life and knowing that salvation. So I just want to speak to you for a moment. If you haven't received God's grace, it may be, I mean, it may be that you don't really know who God is and you're still trying to work that out. 
We'd love you to keep coming and expose yourself to Bible teaching and thinking more about who Jesus is and why he died and what that means for you. It may be, though, that perhaps you still have the idea that there is something that you can do or something God expects you to do in your own strength that will make him accept you. And can I say, if if that's what you're thinking, if that's the idea you're harbouring, you haven't understood the power of the grace of God, the saving power of what Jesus did. Or it may be that you question whether God could possibly accept you. You're aware of your failings, you're aware of what you've done and it's, it brings a sense of guilt or a sense of shame and you wonder, would God accept me? If you wonder that, well, you haven't understood the grace of God either because that's all of us. None of us can be accepted by God on our own merits but he is so gracious, he has extended that offer to all of us in the coming, in the appearing of his son. And so if that's your fear, let me assure you, based on the word of God here, God is ready and willing to accept you through what Jesus has done for you. Reach out and take hold of that offer. He'll never turn you away. And the reason that you can be confident of that is because of the one who died. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through this passage. What does it say specifically about who Jesus is? It says he is our saviour, yes, but it also says he is our God. This is one of the really lovely passages, just to keep up your sleeve if you're in conversation or you're wanting assurance for yourself. One of the few passages in the New Testament that says to us directly, explicitly, Jesus is God. You can get it all over the New Testament, but sometimes it takes a little bit more inference. This one just tells us straight out, Jesus is God. And there's some debate among some people about whether that's grammatically what's going on. It's not very interesting debate because it's pretty clear. This is grammatically and on all kinds of other levels what Paul's saying. Jesus is not just our saviour. He is our God. He's God in the flesh. And he's the one who appeared to redeem us from all wickedness. So we can be fully confident that whatever's happened, he'll accept us. So... God's grace appears in the coming of Jesus. God's grace saves through what Jesus does. And the third thing where we're going to focus most of the rest of our time is that God's grace teaches. God's grace teaches. Uh, And specifically here, God's grace teaches us three things. God's grace teaches us to say no, to say yes, and to wait. It teaches you to say no. Do you want to renounce ungodliness? Do you want to turn away from the old way of life that you used to live? Well, what is going to teach you to do that? It's the grace of God. Do you want to stop being enslaved to worldly passions? Well, what will teach you to do that is the grace of God. God's grace teaches us to say yes. Do you want to learn self-control? Very interesting in the first part of chapter 2, the part we didn't look at, uh, every group apart from young men gets multiple commands. Younger men are told one thing, learn self-control. I find that really interesting. I I wonder why that is. Uh, Maybe it's just that at that stage of life it's the most important thing. Maybe, as someone who used to be a young man, I could say, it's a little hard sometimes to focus on more than one thing at a time, so it's nice and simple. Young men, one thing, self-control. 
But self-control is good for anybody. A little self-control goes a long way. So do you want to learn self-control? Well, who or what will teach you that? It's the grace of God. Do you want to be upright and godly? Go to the grace of God. Now, at this point you might want to stop and ask, okay, that's a fine concept, but how? How does that work? What is it about the grace of God that actually teaches us to live a godly life, to say no to some things, say yes to other things? I want to think with you a little bit to, to try and start getting our heads around that, about the story Les Miserables. Now, I would love to pretend that I've read the book, but I haven't. So this is based totally on the musical or the movie. If, I, if I've botched it up based on that and you've read the book, come tell me later and I'll be embarrassed. Hopefully they, they kind of line up. Uh, it seems to me, from my watching of that movie and the, the stage show, at its heart, Les Miserables is a, a contrast between two people, Jean Valjean and Javert. And it seems as though it's a contrast between a life shaped by grace and a life shaped by justice. See, Javert is the, the policeman and he makes it his life's work to capture Jean Valjean, to, to track this guy down and bring him to justice. Uh, Jean Valjean started out as a criminal and in Javert's mind that's always who he is because he can only think about law and about justice. That's what dictates his whole life. Everything fuels him in that direction. Uh, at one point he sings the words, Mine is the way of the Lord, and those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. Those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Now that's, that's a life shaped by a longing for justice. Right up to, and bear with me, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, right up to the point, as the story goes along, Javert finds himself in Jean Valjean's debt because Valjean shows him grace and he can't bear it. He can't handle it because his whole life has been lived on the basis of justice. And so when he finds himself in someone's debt, having received grace, he's so torn apart by that, what does he do? He takes his own life. He commits suicide and it's meant to be tragic. But he's so in the grip of justice and everything has to fit into that. He can't conceive of another way to live. And then you get Jean Valjean. Starts out as a criminal, known by nothing more than a number, 24601. And he's finally freed from prison, but he makes this terrible mistake as he's trying to get back on his feet. He's taken in by a bishop, but he steals the silverware and, and runs off with it, he's caught and he's brought back to the bishop. The bishop could press charges. The, the bishop could have this guy's life ruined by throwing him back in jail. But what he does, he offers one of the great illustrations of grace in all of fiction because the bishop says to the police, no, 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 they were gifts. He's meant to take them. And by the way, you forgot the best. He is the most valuable. He the, the, gives him these valuable silver candlesticks. Go on your way. But he doesn't just say to him, go on the way, go on your way. He says to him, from this moment on, let your life be changed. Let your life be changed by this moment of grace that you have experienced. You have to see there's a higher plan at work here. You have to go now to, to live a different life, be an honest man from now on. <clears throat> and that's exactly what Jean Valjean does. 
He, he takes on uh, a new identity. He, he receives this act of grace and it drives him to do good. He doesn't just go back to his old life. He's driven now to be a changed person. Not because of justice, not so that he can earn his freedom. He's been given that. It's totally a free gift. He didn't deserve it. But he lives a changed life because he's received his freedom as a gift. Because of grace. Brothers and sisters, when we come to trust in Jesus, when we receive the forgiveness and the redemption that Jesus offers, the goal is not that we would start out like Jean Valjean, but then go on to live a life like Javert. That would be to say, okay, well, the grace of God is the key that starts the car, but then we need something else. Actually, the picture is much more that the grace of God is the key that starts the car, but it's the doors to the car as well, and it's the wheels, and it's the steering wheel, and it's the map that shows us where to go, and it's the engine. That's the picture. The, the picture is not that we go on living in the old way of sin. It is that we now live in the grip of grace, living a life that's transformed by the incredible act of grace that we've received. And as, as moving as that act of grace from that bishop is, it's nothing compared to the reality. Nothing compared to the ultimate act of grace that God has shown us in the appearing of his son, the perfect son, God in the flesh, who willingly offered himself so that our weakness and our wickedness can be forgiven and we can be saved from that. And it is something just a little bit more than that as well, how how the grace of God actually teaches us. Here's one of the key lines that that bishop in Les Mis says to Jean Valjean. He says to him, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. See what he's saying? He's saying, I I didn't just let you go so that you could go on being who you were before. I've saved you for a purpose. That's what this act of grace is about. And that gives you a little hint of what's said in verse 14 of our passage. Look, Look at it with me. He says, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's grace, it it doesn't just wipe the slate clean and kind of put us in neutral. God's grace gives us so much more than we deserve, right up to and including the point that it, it brings us to belong to God. It brings us to belong to Jesus. We are his. In his grace, he's made us his own people. He's purified us. He, he makes us eager and able to do the good works that we want to do. Doesn't that start to change everything? Knowing that Jesus, God in the flesh, has given himself for you, that when he appeared, the perfect grace of God was appearing and he was doing it to bring you to himself. That's the grace of God and that's what it achieves. So where would you then fit into all of that? Where would you fit the Bible's commands? The the Bible tells us many, many things that we should do or not do and we would never want to get rid of those things. We want to say those are good, those are wonderful things that God gives us. This chapter is a great example. Lots of instructions on how different people are to live. But the key thing, I think, is that all of those commands, all of those words from God come to us 
in the context of grace. Do you see the difference there? We're not being told to keep the commands so that God will love us. We're being told God loves you. God's done everything necessary to make you his own and in that framework, now listen to the good commands of God and live that way. The the grace of God is your motivator. The grace of God is the transformer at that point. I do think there's something of a paradox here, just, just for a minute if we can think about this. I think there's a paradox around the idea of the grace of God. There is a sense where the grace of God is far more demanding on us than a law-based or a rules-keeping kind of religion would be. Because if you think about it, if, if relating to God was all about keeping certain rules, if, you, if here's the list, you do these things and God will accept you, what would the effect of that be? The effect would be once you'd gone down the list and you'd ticked all the boxes, you could do whatever you wanted. The, the rest of your life would be your own and God would almost be in your debt. because You tick the boxes, you've got God, he's contractually obligated, something like that. You, you, do you see how there would be more scope in there for parts of our life to be taken back and to belong to us now because we've done what we had to, the rest is mine. The grace of God says to us, I own you. Jesus looks at us and says, I own you. I I gave my very self, I gave everything to make you my own. Now you have to give everything. That's how this transaction works. And so in a sense, the grace of God is very demanding on us. But it is, is the most wonderful kind of demanding that there could be. Because it is not a demand of, will God accept me or not? Will God love me or not? It's the perfect grace of God and the unconditional promise that he does accept you, which creates the framework in which you don't only belong to God, but you want to belong to God and you've been purified to belong to him and you're eager to do what is good. That's the framework of grace. That's that's why we can live in the grip of grace having it teach us to be godly. And then as we do that, as we finish up here, the third thing is where we're taught to say no to things, we're taught to say yes to things, and we're taught to wait. That's the third thing grace teaches us, to wait. See verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing, there's that word again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So you see that the passage kind of frames everything around these these two appearings, which is sort of the beginning and the end of the Christian era, if you like, the, the first appearing of Jesus, which brought grace, the second appearing, which we're waiting for, which will bring glory, which will reveal the glory that is, uh, belongs to Jesus. And so as we live now, between the first appearing and the second appearing, we can live godly lives because we live in the light of the grace of God that has appeared and the glory of Jesus that will appear. We devote ourselves to living for him and finding the good works that he saved us for and it's the grace of God that enables us to do that. Those two appearances form the beginning and the end of the Christian era. And people will sometimes criticise us as Christians for maybe making one or two mistakes or maybe both. Some might criticise us and say, well, Christians, you spend too much time looking way into the past. 2,000 years ago, what's that got to do with today? 
Or maybe they'll say, well, you spend too much time looking to the future, this whole pie in the sky when you die thing. I think the saying goes that some Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I've never met such a person, by the way, but that's the, the criticism that's out there. But brothers and sisters, do you see how in Paul's mind, in God's mind, this is exactly how it's meant to be, looking back, looking forward. And the great thing is you can actually look at the two things at the same time. As you look to the cross, it reminds you that Jesus will come again in glory. As you look to his coming in glory, you're reminded what he did for us in this age. And so as we look to the past and look to the future, that's what enables us to live for him in the present. There's a great line that we say uh, most times, most uh, weeks when we share the Lord's Supper here at St Stephen's in the, the set words that we say. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. What are we doing when we say those three things to each other? Well, we're saying past, Christ has died. Future, Christ will come. Right now, Christ is risen. And so we're, we're teaching one another the essence of the Christian life, that we look back, we look forward, and by the grace of God, we can live the Christian life in the present moment. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. That's where the passage finishes, with Paul urging Titus to teach others these things, and I think by implication, urging us to teach one another these things. So as we teach one another these things, preach the grace of God, the grace of God that appeared, the grace of God that saves, and very importantly, the grace of God that teaches us to live the godly lives that we long to live. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank and praise you that you 